7 in 10 full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, John Prudeau, in for Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. NATO is turning 70. It has a good claim to be the most successful military alliance ever, but its birthday will not be a happy one. 30 years after the end of the Cold War, it's being shaken by a transatlantic argument over who pays the bill and questions about what it should really be for. The president of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte, wants to rename the country, but his suggestion for a new name could be unintentionally smutty. First up, though, it's been five years since an Ebola epidemic swept across West Africa. Wherever Ebola is discovered, that place would be quarantined completely. Nobody gets out, nobody gets in except medical workers. More than 11,000 people in West Africa died. The response was said to be too slow. Last August, a fresh outbreak of the virus hit the Democratic Republic of Congo, or DRC. This was the first time that Ebola had struck in an active war zone. It's now grown to be the second largest Ebola epidemic. It started off in this scrubby village in North Kivu, and now it's spread to other villages and other towns, so it's notably in these two big towns, Beni and Butembo. Olivia Ackland reports for The Economist from the DRC. And it's extremely hard to control and hard to regulate because it's such an insecure area. This is a region that's been terrorised by different armed militia for over two decades. So it's difficult for health workers to get to certain villages. There have been repeated attacks on health workers, on health centres. And Olivia, why are rebels attacking Ebola clinics? The epidemic has been very badly communicated to the population. The people in these rebel groups are people from the communities surrounding Butembo and They don't trust the Ebola response. There's this big jealousy about all of this money that's being pumped into the area that none of the people are really benefiting or really receiving. They see these NGO workers, these UN workers going past in fleets of four by fours, and they think Ebola's business, that people are there to make money. And can you tell me a bit more about the attacks that have been carried out by rebels recently? So there have been three attacks on two Ebola treatment centres in the last month. And one of them was attacked so badly it was completely burnt down. And I also attended a funeral of a police officer who was killed guarding an Ebola centre. He was shot in the head by a group of rebels who came to attack the centre. And I attended his funeral. Lots of the other police officers were there and there was music. And it was a a pretty tragic scene in the church. His, His wife was there, his sisters were there beside the coffin dressed in black, sort of wailing and sobbing. And I spoke to his mother at the door. She just kept repeating that he was a good man, he loved his family, he loved his mother. So she kept asking who, who, who killed him, they killed him, but who are they, who are they? And she said, they've told me it was the Mai Mai. So Mai Mai is quite a blanket term, to be honest. There are myriad different Mai Mai rebel groups. It's basically just groups in the area that have formed to protect their villages. And they're made up of young men in the community. 
An Ebola epidemic on its own is a terrible thing. When you have an Ebola epidemic in a war zone, how much harder does it make to, to treat that epidemic? It makes it a lot harder. One of the major problems is that you're dealing with a terrorized population, people who've been attacked by different armed groups, and it's difficult for them to trust the people in the response. There's very low trust in institutions and authorities for very good reason. And there are lots of rumors about the army and the police being involved with the rebel groups. There's this sort of frustration that people are saying, well, we've been subject to these attacks for years and nobody's done anything. And now that there's an Ebola outbreak, all of these foreigners are flooding in and trying to help us. Well, where were they before? And how does that low trust affect attempts to try and contain this Ebola outbreak? Does it mean that it's going to last much longer, spread over a wider area than it, than it would otherwise? It sounds like it. Yeah, I spoke to many different people in the community who said they just don't believe Ebola exists. And so they don't believe Ebola exists. They're not going to comply with all of the incredibly necessary procedures to stop the spread, you know, washing your hands, not touching people who could have Ebola, not touching dead bodies. People are trying to hide from the authorities. They're trying to hide their sick. They're trying to do their secret burials themselves. And it's disastrous for the spread of the disease. And the people who you spoke to who don't believe in Ebola, do they offer an alternative explanation for why people are getting sick and dying? There are masses of different conspiracy theories. I spoke to somebody who said Ebola is a game invented by the Congolese government. It's another way to massacre us. And so I asked him, well, why, why would the Congolese government want to massacre you? And he said, well, in Beni, which is the other place where they also have Ebola, the Congolese government are massacring people with the rebel groups, that they're behind the rebel groups. But here we don't have enough forest for the rebel groups to hide in, so this is why they've bought Ebola. And what's the response been like, both from the government in Congo and from international aid organisations? To be honest, I think the response started off pretty badly. I've been speaking to a lot of rather jaded aid workers who are very critical of what's been going on on the ground. And why is that? I think that they should have approached in the beginning with a much bigger plan of how to sensitise a region that's been ravaged by conflict for such a long time and how to approach these people delicately using people from their community instead of outsiders. One organisation that has been working to build trust amongst communities affected by Ebola in Congo is Médecins Sans Frontières. We spoke to its president, Joanne Liu, at the start of the month, following attacks on healthcare workers. We need to acknowledge how brutal it is to be cared for when you are a Ebola patient, in the sense that it's tough, you are isolated from your family, you go in a center where people are wearing personal protection and they look like spacemen around you. We need to prove and show that we are on the side of the patient. The organization has had to suspend its medical activities in the epicenter of the outbreak after two of its treatment centers were torched. What seems to be the issue at the moment is the deteriorating security situation. Natasha Loder is our health policy editor. She joined me to discuss the wider effort to prevent the spread of Ebola. We know how to control Ebola. Um, you identify the cases, uh, you isolate people, you dispose of bodies carefully and you trace the contacts. And we also have a vaccine as well that's been given to 90,000 people. So we are making a lot of progress, but we're not making quite enough to contain the epidemic. But on the upside, the, the weekly case count is half of what it was in January. You mentioned the vaccine. Is that a practical way to prevent the spread of Ebola? 
It's a really helpful tool for a couple of reasons. One is that you can give it to healthcare workers. And so that means that if you're kind of on the front lines and you're working with lots of Ebola patients, you don't need to fear for your life. And also you don't lose as many healthcare workers. And what we saw in the previous Ebola outbreak is that countries with very few healthcare workers were losing them at really enormous rates. The difficulty with the vaccine is there isn't quite enough of it. I mean, in an ideal world is that we'd probably deploy a lot more of it. There was comparatively a lot of attention paid to the Ebola outbreak in 2014 in West Africa, much less to this one. Why is that? There was there were a couple of issues. I mean, one is that it had spread across three countries, and uh, another is just the simple sheer scale of the outbreak was much larger. This one, I think, the international response has been more or less commensurate with what has been needed with, I would say, one big caveat, and that is that they are short of money now. WHO told me uh, about a week ago they needed about $148 million. Um, and I'm, more recently I've seen a figure of $60 million. This is US dollars, by the way. The fact that it's not there is a little bit troubling because it's very short-sighted. You can either choose to spend now or, you know, you can wait a few weeks and you're going to have to pay that money perhaps many times over because that's the nature of epidemics, especially one like this. It's not going to burn out on its own. It's highly infectious and it's deadly and it's going to continue to get worse unless we stamp it out. Natasha, thank you. Thank you very much. Seventy years ago, the world was reeling from the Second World War. forces set about burning every vestige of the horror camps from the face of the earth. And Europe was divided by an iron curtain. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. There was also determination to prevent Europeans from going to war with each other again and to halt the spread of Soviet communism. In Washington, a new military treaty lent muscle to those hopes. These countries extend the line of democratic solidarity north of the Tropic of Cancer from the River Elba to Alaska. Italy, America's President Harry Truman hailed the alliance, which was then made up of 10 European countries, Canada and the United States. If it had have existed in 1914 and in 1939, supported by the nations who are represented here today, I believe it would have prevented the acts of aggression which led to two world wars. Those 12 nations promised to uphold democracy, individual liberty, and the rule of law, and to help each other out if one of them was ever attacked. For us, war is not inevitable. And so the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, was born. It was to prove more resilient than many would have predicted. The primary mission back then was to defend the West against a possible Soviet attack following the Second World War. Nicholas Burns was America's ambassador to NATO from 2001 to 2005. And NATO succeeded. Article 5 of the treaty says that each state must consider an attack against any of their number to be an attack on all of them, and that they must respond collectively. It has only been invoked once, after the September 11th attacks, during Mr. Burns's tenure. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the We were sitting helplessly in our office at, at the U.S. mission to NATO watching CNN, watching this terrible destruction and death in my country. That a plane has crashed into one of the towers 
of the World Trade Center. And the phone rang. My phone rang. It was my Canadian colleague, David Wright, ambassador of Canada. And he said, have you thought about invoking Article 5, which had never been invoked in the history of NATO because the Soviets had never attacked during the Cold War? And I said, well, we do operate by consensus, meaning every country would have to agree to it. And I worried about a scenario where one or two countries might not be willing to say, yes, we'll go to war with the Americans against al-Qaeda. But by that evening, by the evening of September 11th, when the, the North Atlantic Council, the ambassadors met together from all the NATO countries, every one of them said to me formally, we will join in an Article 5 declaration. We will join up and we will defend you and we'll fight with you. He called National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice. And before we signed off, she said something that I'd never forgotten. She said, it is sure good to have friends in the world. And I've reflected on that many, many times since then because we now have a president, Donald Trump, who has been dismissive of the very friends who rallied behind us on 9-11. President Trump has a confrontational, sometimes inaccurate way of airing grievances with allies. But his main beef with NATO is one that American presidents have long had with their European allies over the level of defense spending in Europe. NATO members must finally contribute their fair share, and meet their financial obligations. America's president has exposed cracks in the transatlantic alliance at a time when threats against it have increased. So in a sense, it's the best of times and the worst of times at the moment for NATO. Daniel Franklin is The Economist's diplomatic editor. He's written a special report on NATO in this week's edition. It's the best of times because it has this sense of renewed energy. It's spending more money. It's got troops forward in places like the Baltic countries and Poland. It's got a very ambitious targets for military readiness. Uh, but it's the worst of times because there's an existential threat hanging over it in the shape of President Donald Trump, who questions the very reason for NATO's existence and whether it's a good thing from America's point of view. When I was at primary school in England, I remember in the first geography lesson being taught that Europe was divided into a red area, which was the Warsaw Pact, and a blue area, which was NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And then a few weeks later, a kid brought a lump of the Berlin Wall into school and then our geography syllabus had to be changed. And yet, you know, decades on, here NATO still is turning 70. How has it changed in terms of membership, in terms of its kind of core mission since the Berlin Wall came down? Yes, that's a wonderful uh, question because it, it, it has changed a lot. First of all, the membership has, has grown. When NATO was founded, there were 12 members back in 1949. Now there are 29 and it will be uh, soon 30 when North Macedonia joins and three former Soviet republics, the Baltic states, are now members of NATO. Uh, and the mission has changed too. Many people thought that once the Cold War was over, job done, NATO could go home. But in fact, what it first of all did was help to stabilize the new democracies of Eastern Europe. And then it went out of area. It went as far away as Afghanistan, still in Afghanistan, it went to Kosovo. Kosovo, uh, there's still a NATO mission. Uh, and more recently, um, as I mentioned, it's moved back to its core mission of defense in its core territory of Europe against a newly aggressive Russia. How has NATO responded to Russia becoming more assertive and adventurous in for example, in Ukraine and elsewhere? Well, Ukraine was a wake-up call for sure. And since then, um, I think uh, Europe and NATO more broadly has looked at the, uh, the build-up of Russian forces um, along 
uh, the, the frontiers and the increased mobility and uh, uh, capability that Russia is demonstrating and the missiles that can reach Berlin in less than five minutes, for example. And now they've had to uh, adjust. And they've done so, it has to be said, rather vigorously, I think, taking many people by surprise, spending a lot more money, putting more uh, forces in, but also setting very ambitious targets for the reinforcements and the mobility that would be needed to back them up and give the credibility to the collective defense. There's also a lot of talk at the moment about China, the rise of China in every dimension, but there's clearly a military strategic dimension to that. It's something that America is very focused on. Could you imagine one day a further expansion, perhaps bringing in Japan, South Korea, Australia, or is that something that just seems completely impossible. I think it's very unlikely that NATO itself would expand. Nevertheless, I think what you mentioned, um, the rise of China, this is the the biggest issue for NATO over the coming decades. It's the great change in geopolitics. America's attention is going to be increasingly taken up by how to deal with this rival power as it challenges its interests all around the world. So this is going to arise more and more. And and, and I think NATO, particularly European NATO members, need to work out a policy for it. Donald Trump famously likes his briefings to be kept short and sweet. If you had 30 seconds to explain to him why NATO membership is in America's interests and will continue to be in America's interests, what would you say? I would think I would say it was a good deal for America already. Could be a little bit better, yes. The allies could spend a bit more money, but fundamentally a good deal, especially as America moves into an era of great power rivalry, which is what uh, America is expecting with uh, Russia, with China. Uh, America has allies. That's a key strength, which Russia and China don't have. They don't have allies. So don't throw this out. Getting rid of it would create huge problems, which you don't want to do, and it could undermine his presidency. 70 is a grand old age for a military alliance. Do you think NATO will make it to 100? Well, first of all, it's worth reflecting just how grand it is. The average age for a collective defense alliance over the past 500 uh, years is only about 15 years. So NATO is a real outlier. And it will need to change again. It can't just carry on what it's doing now and expect to last forever. It has in particular to be able to react more swiftly in an age when technology is moving faster. It has to be clear about its priorities because it may be trying to do too many things. And it has to get its mind around the China question, which is perhaps the biggest one it faces in the coming decades. Daniel, thank you very much. Thank you, John. Seven in ten full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company. Hey, Ken Kukier here. I've just stepped out of my time machine to tell you about the latest Babbage podcast. I've traveled back in time 30 years to the birth of the World Wide Web. I spoke with some of the people who were influential in its creation, including Vint Cerf, yes, the father of the internet, and Ted Nelson. You'll find The Economist Babbage podcast wherever you're listening to this one. Read. 
Rodrigo Duterte, the president of the Philippines, has a reputation for saying outlandish things. He's called Barack Obama the son of a whore. He's called God stupid. And earlier this month, he was at it again. It concerns the most basic thing about the Philippines. Ed McBride is the Asia editor of The Economist. He says he thinks it should have a new name. He doesn't like the name the Philippines because it's a reminder of Spanish colonialism. He wants to start again. So how did the Philippines get its name? Well, the first Europeans to visit the Philippines were were explorers in the pay of the Spanish crown, uh, most famously Magellan, the man who didn't quite sail around the world because he got killed by the people he met in the Philippines, in fact. And uh, one of these explorers decided to, in a sort of standard gesture of sycophancy, name the Philippines after the guy who at the time was the crown prince of Spain and, and later became the king of Spain, Philip II. And so the name has stuck ever since the 16th century. So it's a Eurocentric, sort of rather colonial name. What would Duterte like the country, his country to be called instead? Well, so what Duterte has said is that he wants the Philippines to be called Maharlika, which he says is a, an indigenous name from Malay civilization, which is the civilization that existed in the Philippines before the Spanish colonialists arrived. The problem is that, first of all, it's not really clear that Maharlika means what Mr. Duterte thinks. He thinks it, it means nobility, But it's not clear that that's correct. The way the term was used, it was for a social class, but not the high social class in pre-colonial Philippine society, a sort of of middle-of-the-road strata. So it's not quite the label he thinks. So that's one problem with his suggestion, but there are some others, right? So an even bigger problem, really, is the fact that the name Maharlika is associated with the uh, former dictator of the Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos. Marcos himself suggested changing the name to Maharlika. It never came to anything. And Marcos also said that he had been the leader of a guerrilla group fighting the Japanese occupation during the Second World War called Maharlika. The hitch is that Marcos was a dictator, and so his his reputation is is not perfect within the Philippines. And also this group, Maharlika, that he claimed to have led, most historians doubt that any such group existed, or if it did, it certainly didn't get up to the grand exploits that that Marcos claims. He, He basically made it all up to make himself look like a war hero. And Ed, my Sanskrit is not particularly good, but I understand that there's also a Sanskrit problem with the word. Yes, quite. Well, the problem is that the word appears to be Sanskrit. It's it's not Malay at all, as Duterte said. And there's some dispute as to exactly what it means in Sanskrit. So, you know, I mentioned this idea that it referred to a particular social class. The Sanskrit root of that could be sort of people of ability or, you know, people of skills. That, that, that would be all right. But there's a, there's a minority view that it actually derives from the Sanskrit phrase mahalingam, which basically means big phallus. Obviously, a, 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 an awkward choice for the new name for the Philippines. Yes, that's, that would be awkward. How do people in the Philippines feel about all of this? Are they anxious for their country to be renamed? Is there a better suggestion out there? Well, President Marcos, when he was running the country, had a go at this. His idea didn't get anywhere. President Duterte's idea doesn't seem to be um, catching fire. Any changes to the name would require an amendment to the constitution approved by a plebiscite. There was a petition online by by a fan of the idea of, of, of changing the name to Mahalika last year. It attracted precisely seven endorsements out of a population of 105 million. So I I think it's safe to say that the president will need to build up a little bit more momentum yet. Ed McBride, thank you very much. Thank you.
That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. You can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Seven in 10 full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company.